USC athletic directors are facing uncomfortable questions in the trial over whether college athletes should be considered employees. Ohio State is taking NIL spending to the next level. And later, we're looking into some emerging trends in sports economics with an analyst from Deloitte. It's Friday, January 26th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. trial brought by the National Labor Relations Board against USC, the Pac-12, and the NCAA is ongoing. Joining me now to discuss from Los Angeles where the trial is going on is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. Welcome, Amanda. Hey, how's it going? Great. Uh, great to have you on. So so let's start with shoes. So a portion of the trial on Wednesday related to the shoes worn by USC athletes. Why is this suddenly important to the future of college athletics? Yeah, so the trial over whether or not USC football and basketball players should be considered employees um, is one that will largely be decided based on the answer to the question, how much control does USC exert over its athletes? The amount of control is is a big um, factor when determining uh, employee status in US labor law, right? So just keep that in the back of your mind as I tell you the story. Um, so essentially, um, USC's assistant athletic director of women's basketball operations was subpoenaed to testify. Um, and the National Labor Relations Board representing the athlete side, their lawyer uh, at one point asked him, you know, you set which uniforms um, players should bring or which, um, you know, sweatsuits they should wear when they're traveling, shoes, etc. Um what would happen if an athlete showed up wearing something different than what you suggested? And he tried to say, oh, it would be fine, whatever. And then the the, the lawyer said, well, USC, uh, their apparel contract is with Nike, correct? He goes, yes. And then, <laughs> and then the lawyer says, well, what if a player wanted to wear Adidas basketball shoes? And there was this long pause, right? Because to admit that that would be against the rules would speak to the level of control that athletes, um, you know, uh, experience. And he said, can you clarify? And he said, well, we'd have a conversation. And then she hits him with the big question, which is what about during the game? Can a player step onto the hardwood for USC wearing Adidas sneakers? His answer is, I'm not sure the answer to that question. Which, we all know the answer to that question. The answer is no. You know that if you work in an athletic department, if you're an athlete, if you work in apparel, if you literally are a person who has ever read the news about college sports ever, um, it's pretty obvious, but that's what he said. And I got to say, my jaw dropped to the floor when he said that. And this sounds like one of those things where it's like either he's lying or he, you know, doesn't know a basic part of his job that either it's, you know, dishonesty or incompetence. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. You know, and, and, and look, I would like to say about all these witnesses, um, you know, that they're not testifying as their own selves, right? They're testifying as members of the entity of USC. So I imagine that uh, 
lawyers instructed him or suggested that he, you know, try not to say uh, he, he was sure about a lot of these things that might be detrimental to USC. Um, you know, I, I, I would never want to accuse anyone of perjury because I don't have the evidence to support that. It's possible he just doesn't know. Um, but it's a common refrain in litigation for when, when there's an answer, when the answer to something is yes, a clear yes or no, but you don't want to answer, you either say, I don't recall, or I'm not sure. Uh huh. Yeah. And maybe on similar lines, there was another line of questioning um, this week around the added travel that's going to happen through conference realignment through the Pac-12 falling apart. Um, is that basically pointing toward the same issue of um, athletes are being controlled, essentially, by by their universities? Um, and so how did how did that whole line of questioning go? Yes, it's it's exactly the same question about control, um, you know, and about the effect that decisions that USC makes have on athletes. And um, so this was this was a question posed to a different witness, a deputy athletic director, who at a certain point served as an interim athletic director. Um, and when asked if there would be extra travel time, she kind of said, technically, yes, but, you know, days away from campus, we're not sure, we don't think it'll be any extra. And that's a common refrain I've heard in covering conference realignment, that uh, these schools and conferences are claiming that they are coming up with creative scheduling ways to mitigate the impacts of travel, whatever. So... <laughs> so essentially, you know, she's asked, um, you know, you are tasked with overseeing them, the mental and physical well-being of athletes. She said, yes. They said, well, is there going to be a negative impact on athletes from increased travel? Similar to the other witness sort of back and forth I described, she didn't want to answer. She wasn't sure. USC's lawyers tried to object a couple times. Um, and then ultimately, the only response that she offered was, if there is a negative impact, USC will work to mitigate it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, lawyer talk. Uh, there's still some trial left to go here. Do you th see things pointing in any particular direction? It's really hard to say um, as someone who isn't a labor lawyer. Um, but the one thing that I want to note that um, is different from just like a normal trial that could definitely Im influence the ultimate decision. Um, you know, a lot of times there are jury trials in, in regular court, right? Those are private citizens who are selected to um, make a decision on a case. And they may not be as aware of the sort of ins and outs of the, of the, of the way that this testimony is presented, the I don't recall, the I'm not sure, the I don't know. This is an administrative law trial. The judge is the decider. The judge is tasked with assessing the credibility of the witnesses before even considering the testimony. So I think it's going to be a bit harder for either party attempting to use the usual tips and tricks um, to actually be able to convince her that something is true that isn't. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on this one as it goes forward. It's going to have potentially huge ramifications. Amanda Krisovich, thanks so much for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. North Carolina is set to become the 30th state to offer mobile sports betting on March 11th. The state had a legal mandate to allow sports betting by June 15th, but NC decision makers may have had an eye on the sports calendar with their date selection. The ACC tournament begins the day after North Carolina allows sports betting on mobile devices. UNC, Duke, Wake Forest, and NC State are all part of the ACC, and their men's basketball teams are respectively first, third, fifth, and sixth in the conference at the moment. The ACC women's tournament will finish just before betting begins in the Tar Heel State. And of course, the ACC tournament is just a warm-up, especially when it comes to betting for March Madness, which begins the week after. North Carolina's first few weeks as a legal sports betting state may pack in a large chunk of its wagers for the full year. Staying in college sports, former Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh is going pro after signing a deal to be the head coach of the Los Angeles Chargers. That's despite Michigan reportedly having offered to make Harbaugh the highest paid coach in college football, which would mean a deal worth at least $11 million per season. Meanwhile, Michigan's longtime rival, Ohio State, is loading up in an attempt to rise above its nemesis. OSU is reportedly spending between $10 and $13 million in NIL to retain the players they have and bring in top recruits. Drew Esler, vice president of Ohio State Collective, the 1870 Society, told the Wall Street Journal, quote, instead of complaining, everybody's put their money where their mouth is. One of those people putting money up is Houston Texans quarterback C.J. Stroud, who left OSU for the NFL draft last year and is reportedly a major OSU donor. Michigan has won the last three contests with Ohio State. Next season, we'll see if all that money and Harbaugh's absence can break the streak. Up next, major consulting firm Deloitte has released a report on the future of sports economics. Pete Giorgio, one of the leaders behind the project, joined to talk about the changing nature of sports league revenue streams, all the money pouring in from private equity firms in the Middle East, and the future of major events like the Olympics and the World Cup. That conversation is coming up next. All right, very excited to be joined now by Pete Giorgio, global and U.S. sports practice leader at Deloitte. Welcome, Pete. Hey, how you doing, Owen? Great, great to have you on. Uh, so Deloitte just put out its 2024 sports industry outlook. It's on a number of forward-looking topics and sports, sports economics. Uh, the report highlights the number of opportunities for leagues to grow their revenue. We'll, we'll get to those soon. Uh, I wanted to start, though, by asking sort of about the, the status quo. Like, if are, are the sort of traditional stable or the traditional revenue sources like media deals, ticketing, you know, we could throw in like sponsorships, concessions, that kind of thing. If a league just kind of does the normal expected thing on in those areas, are they going to be okay going forward? Or is this a moment when leagues have to kind of reevaluate and say, even though things have been going pretty well, we, we have to you know chart a, a new course here? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, I think the position that sports properties generally, whether it's leagues or teams or otherwise, are as strong as ever, right? And I think fundamentally the content is still compelling. Uh, the fact that the, uh, bringing live content, you know, it's basically the last bastion of live content that people really want to go after. Um, people still want to go to games. Uh, people want to go to matches and see it. Fandom seems to be at an all-time high. So I think that a lot of the fundamentals are there, um, but there's some interesting sort of changing dynamics. So even though the content continues to be very, um, uh, you know, still very uh, valuable, where that content shows up is going to change, right? So how you think about linear broadcasts and traditional broadcast models and who, you know, from some of the technology companies, things like that moving forward, what the ex expectations that fan have when they go to a game or a match and how that's different than it used to be. And so I do think the fundamentals are great, but there's going to be a lot of change. Yeah. And are there sort of 
danger zones, trip hazards, like places where, I mean, obviously there are places leaks can go wrong, um, but any particular areas that you see is like, you, you really want to get this one right going forward, or like you could actually be in trouble down the road. And I don't know about, to your point, I don't know about being in trouble, but you know, you and I have very different expectations of where we spend our money these days and what type of experience we expect. We've been trained by Disney. We've been trained by Apple. We've been trained by Amazon to have certain ways that we interact with companies and brands. And in some ways, sports has been a little immune to that in the past, just because, you know, I love to go to Celtics games. I love to go to these games. And in some ways, I don't care how hard it is to sort of connect the parking app to the ticketing app and how smooth that experience is. But that's changing. Right. And so I do think and, and most properties are there just in terms of thinking they've got up their game on the experience. They've got up their game on these things. So I'd say that's one place. Uh, certainly, you know, as you think about who your partner is to take your content to market, um, you always want to end up being with those. These, these tend to be long term deals. Right five-year deals, 10-year deals. You want to be with the people that are going to win in that space. And so I do think there's a higher order um, scrutiny on on where and how and who we're going to uh, partner with on that content too as well that has a lot of properties sort of thinking differently. But yeah, no, that's where I'd expect is like media generally is, you know, it's 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 changing in, in real time. And yeah, and sports is obviously a, a big driver of that. Uh, the report also names some emerging revenue sources. Um, one that, that I was curious about, so just to list off a few, there's globalization, you know, as we see sports, you know, crossing every border they can, both of women's sports, we've, we've seen, you know, as an ongoing thing, you know, only just getting started in a lot of ways, I think. Uh, it also mentions new real estate ventures. Is that referring to how, you know, anytime almost we have a new stadium or a new arena, there's, there's a whole district that pops up around it of, you know, shops and housing and all that stuff. Is that what we're talking about here? I mean, just, yeah, exactly, exactly that. As you think about effectively what all these organizations are doing is thinking about their brand more broadly as an asset and what other parts of revenue chains that they it can be applied to, right? So if I build a stadium, how do I use the fact that um, this stadium sits within an entertainment district and how... Uh, compelling that will be for people to be a place to live or businesses to house themselves or things like that too. And so where and how do you think about real estate and just about every stadium arena conversation now is not just about the arena. It's about the district around it and, 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 and the various aspects of how to monetize that district too. Are there any conclusions that you can come to around, you know, if there's a right way to do these districts, because there's only so many of them these days. And obviously it depends, you know, there's specifics to each location, um, are, are there any learnings you can point to about, you know, w- what a, a good version of this looks like? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's still a little early with a lot of these, although there's examples that have been around for a long time, too, at least versions of this. And I would say that one of the biggest learnings is is kind of fit for use. You said it before. What works in Los Angeles may not be the same as what works in Dallas, uh, either because of the business community there or the real estate community there. Um or just because of what's available, right? Typically, one of the compelling parts of these things is these real estate developments, these entertainment districts are connected to some sort of space in the downtown area, right? That's easily accessible by um, by folks, either by public transportation or even, but that's not always the case, right? Some places you've got to really think about outside. So what you do 20 miles outside of a major metropolitan area is very different than what you do, you know, in the middle of a city too. So I think fit for use is part of it. I think too, thinking about it holistically, right? It's not, this is a 
this is a district that you're building, not just a set of disconnected buildings and experience as well. And so how do you make it um, a connected experience, a seamless experience, not just within an arena or a stadium, but across all the different pieces of that district too? Mm-hmm. And, and the um, among those new revenue sources, potential new revenue sources, the report also mentions uh, globalization and also um, potential new investors. And especially on that latter point, my mind goes straight to the Middle East where we're seeing, you know, Saudi Arabia, especially, but other countries there, their sovereign wealth funds, just pouring incredible amounts of money into into sports um, as a way to diversify their economies and make people maybe think of them differently. Um, how, how important is that, you know, when we think of... Um, you know, the, the, the future of, of sports business. Um, yeah. How important is, is that Middle East money going to be to, you know, your traditional, especially like, you know, NBA, NHL, those leagues that are starting to welcome that money in. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the one piece that's important to remember is that while this recent trend and not even so recent, it's been going on for, I think, longer than people realize of money coming from the Middle East is just a broader trend of global hotspots of where and how investment in sports comes from, right? We've gone through phases of China. We've gone through a Russia phase. We've gone through, um, you know, a U.S. phase in terms of where it's coming from. And so what we're seeing is just a broader trend of as you're thinking about these franchises and as they increase in value, right? So the other piece of this puzzle is these franchises have gone through enormous growth in value. It starts to limit the number of opportunities and places that can actually afford them. And so you start to look in these different spots. Um, I think the interesting part, though, is while where the money is, is an important part of the equation, it's not the only piece of the equation, right? Because a lot of organizations also are thinking about where and how do I bring expertise, not just dollars, right? How can I, how do I, how do I partner with an organization that's done this before, who knows how to run sports franchises, who's done real estate before around these things and knows how the right way to do that is a piece too. So, um, you know, the Middle East, obviously with, with all, all of the countries there, UAE, Qatar, um, Saudi Arabia are starting to get, you know, it's been in the news a lot, but they've been investing in sports for a while. Um, but not as much in the U.S. Um, their, their ability to sort of invest in the U.S. is relatively new and nascent. And, you know, folks like the NBA have started loosening their rules a little bit to allow this to happen. But, you know, they've been in uh, European football for a while and other places as well. And also domestically, you know, you are seeing a lot of these countries really invest now in building their domestic leagues and things like that as well, too. Yeah. And I think that the China example is an instructive one here. Um, not to say, I mean, China is one country, the Middle East is, is several, but the, it was, there was a time not too long ago when a significant percentage of European soccer teams were had Chinese investment, many of them had Chinese ownership. Um, and then those are pretty much all gone. Um, and, you know, when you've got these concentrated piles of money, you know, it, it can get in quickly and it can get out quickly. So, you know, I, I guess it's just, yeah, I have no like, you know, prognostications about this, but it's, it's something where um, we, you know, one day we could just see Saudi Arabia and say, you know, all right, we're, we're actually done investing in, in, you know, American and European sports. We're going to go do something else. I mean, the, the one thing to remember too, is, you know, the way the capital markets work is anytime you buy something, you're also all, are immediately thinking about your exit too. Right. These things are investments. They want to see a return. And, and a lot of them have formulas and, and ways to think about it that, by the way, have, have done very well over the years where they, you know, they're going to get in and they're going to get out. And I think there's just a, there's a natural cycle to these things that 
that I agree. I think, you know, may or may not continue and you'll, you'll continue to see this. But if history tells us anything, this money will move around. Last thing I wanted to hit on is, um, so we, we've got the Olympics coming up. Um, we just, you know, not too long ago had the, the Men's World Cup in Qatar where they spent $200 billion, which every time I see that number, it sort of glitches out my brain. Anyway, these, even if you're not doing that, um, these places are spending billions of dollars on these big events, often putting up infrastructure that they can't necessarily use um, or they can't use in the same way going forward. Um, the, the report points to some like risk around financial sustainability around these huge, you know, Olympics, World Cup, these mega, mega events um, that are very in demand, but also, you know, somewhat fraught financially. So what, what's the future of those as we um, as we kind of reevaluate if how, how worth it they are to host? Yeah, I mean, they, I think there's an intangible piece of the puzzle that's always important to start with, which is. You know, things like the Olympics and the World Cup, you know, in an increasingly fractured world and in a place where, you know, there's increasing conflict, uh, you know, these sporting events create opportunities for for people from around the world to come together and disagree productively, right? Disagree in a way and, and do those things. And I think I think all of these events provide an example, if not a medium to, to, to do those sorts of things. And so. Uh, I do think they're important. I do think they're important for the world. I think they're important for a lot of things. Um, they are very, very, especially in Olympics, is a very, very complex endeavor. I, we don't really think about it because you people typically engage with something like the Olympics as as like I'm a basketball fan or I'm a gymnastics fan or I'm a volleyball fan. And so we only think about that aspect of it. Um, but if you actually add it all up, you know, running an Olympics is like running seven Super Bowls a day for two weeks. Right. And you don't get a second chance. Right. You've got to make sure that happens. So that just creates a very complicated and very um, high stakes situation um, to execute. Right. And so and I think what we're finding is that. Uh, we're learning a lot about the, 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 the right ways to do that, um, some challenges in doing that. And I think more and more you'll see places, you know, I, I think L.A. is a great example where there's, there, there's a bunch of existing infrastructure that they're going to use. There isn't this need to, um, uh, to build a whole bunch of new things. And so I think you'll see more of that, as well as in places where additional infrastructure is required, a lot more thoughtful engagement on what that is, What's the long-term use for that? Um, you know, what are we going to do with that long-term so we don't have some of those different challenges too? And I think I think everybody involved in that is eyes wide open on those going forward uh, and making sure that happens. Yeah. All right. Fascinating stuff. Pete Giorgio, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Drop us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts or share an episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you on Monday.